0: Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. A few weeks ago, I went to the theater. Exciting. It's been more than a year since I've last seen a play, due to the corona pandemic, and I wondered if the experience would be any different. It wasn't. I sat down, the curtains went up, the actors came on stage, and the play started. Don't get me wrong. I did enjoy the play, but at the same time, I wondered, doesn't theater need to change? Does theater need to make use of modern technology more to keep up with all the other forms of entertainment we have today?
1: Basically, what's happened, I guess, in the last 30 years or 20 years is that the Internet and technology has made us realize that large parts of our life is really about exchanging information. You know, you you guys and me, we don't need to be in the same room right now, because it doesn't really matter. All that matters is the information.
0: Thank God we have people like Ben Kidd in the room. Ben is one half of Dead Center, which is probably one of the most innovative theater companies in the world right now. Together with him and Stephanie Schmidt, a dramaturg and stage manager at Viennesburg Theater, I sat down to discuss the changing role of theater today. Ben and Stephanie! Welcome to the podcast. Where does the name Dead Center come from?
1: The first thing, I suppose, the short answer to that question is a bit of a disappointing one, because it came from my colleague, who's not here, who's absent, Bush, who I think he would claim it just came to him in a dream, you know? It just sort of had a a feeling. In English, of course, one of the connotations is dead centre, right in the middle. And you would often, it has a bit of a theatre connotation, centre stage, you know. And yet this feeling that what's in the centre is not there, what's in the centre is dead. There's a kind of a, a literary reference in it, I think, for Irish, for the Irish, certainly which is the WB 8 line. Uh, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Um, I've forgotten the name of the poem it's from, but um, this idea that the, the center is no longer providing the fulcrum or you know, no longer holding everything together.
0: And how did you and Bush meet and what led to the founding of the company in 2012?
1: It was an accident. We, we actually met years and years ago at university in the UK. We were both studying philosophy. I think I studied philosophy with English literature. And we were just friends. And then we went our separate ways. He ended up in Dublin. And I was living in London. And he wanted to make a show. He was working as a performer. And he wanted to make a show. And he needed a director. Which I think really just meant he needed someone to make sure the lights were pointed in the right direction. Because he performed the show. He wrote a piece and performed it. I went across to help him make that work. It was a very small work. But Dublin is a a city that has a theatre community, which is incredibly vibrant and very small. Um, And so what it means is when you start making work, lots of people see it and lots of people talk about it. And you see everyone else's work and you talk with them about the work they're making. It's a really brilliantly sort of vibrant place to nurture and cultivate artists at the beginning of their creative journey. Lots and lots of really interesting young companies emerge because there is this kind of very strong theatrical tradition, especially a literary tradition with lots of great playwrights in the 20th century in particular, but also this kind of really interesting, what happens when you make theatre in a small city, basically, that everyone is communicative, everyone is kind of cross-pollinating their work. So we made a first show, and then it seemed to make sense to sort of make another one. And we just, in the first few years, we just followed ideas. If one of us had an interesting idea for a show, Then we thought, what else is there to do except for try and make it? You know, we were a bit younger and we weren't as worried about long-term plans. So we just kind of followed. So we never had a plan. We never had a manifesto. We never had an idea about what kind of work we wanted to make. Some people really do, and I respect them immensely. But for us, it was accidental and following instinct, really an opportunity. And then after a while, you look back and go, oh, we've been doing this for eight, nine years And you also go, yeah, I guess we have found particular themes, particular ideas that we keep coming back to. I
0: find it actually quite interesting, which is also something I only realise now, that also with Steffi here, and you mentioned it before, you have this background in research and researching the history and the future of theatre, as well as being in a super hands-on job, I guess, as a stage manager at Book Theatre. And you, Ben and Bush, both also have this theoretical background you know in philosophy and then this very hands-on approach to to theater so steffi how can we imagine your day-to-day life as you know stage managing one of the most important stages in the world at book theater and then accompanying that with theoretical research into the history and future of theater
2: oh well um, thanks for the questions um it's a bit overwhelming to be the academic <laughs> here um what made me go to the theater was the interest in um, us as human beings, how we experience the world and how can we make, like um, in the age of enlightenment, we had all these the new discoveries, the natural sciences, the new optical devices, um, the knowledge about electricity and um, Pepper's ghost and the telescope and the mi- microscope and um so, so we could experience the world in a new way and um, human beings became the center of the universe. And where the authors like uh, Friedrich Schiller, who was um, also tra- a trained doctor, um, wh- where they tried to find out more about human psyche and uh, the, 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 the soul, um, it's called Erfahrungsseelenkunde, experience of the human soul. Um, and the observation of the human soul was very interesting for them on uh, theater as a model of the world. And I think in your work, you use theater as a laboratory and as a model of the world. When I think of the Wittgenstein play you're doing at the Academy Theater right now, um, you use a diorama to explore, uh, to tell the story. Um, so just uh, to play the ball back to you, can you explain what the audience is going to see at the Wittgenstein? Yeah, that's a really interesting
1: description, I suppose, of theatre as part of this laboratory and emerging as this, op- this way of trying to put things. Because, yeah, I guess the sta- a stage has been different things at different points in history. It's had different metaphorical uses. But always, I suppose, what you're doing with a stage is putting the world on it and we all watch it and see if we can learn anything. And there is something about the contained nature of a stage, I suppose. whatever the stage is, it's, it delimits the boundaries. It just sort of says, look at this. What do we think about this? What does this teach us or tell us about what it feels like to be a human? So we're, we're, we're making this piece, uh, Alice Basterfallist, which we did the rehearsals for and then put it in the fridge, as we're able to do in the in the Vienna system, which was started by thinking about Wittgenstein and thinking about Wittgenstein's book, Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. And we were particularly interested in one bit of that book um, and one bit of his thinking where he talks about models and pictures. He thinks that language is like a picture. Language functions like a picture. Language functions like a model. (laughs) And models are something that theatre uses a lot as well to design stages. You make a little model. And it's often a very, very beautiful process when you make these little models, but no one in the audience ever gets to see them because you make full-size stages because models are just for play, right? Models are just for the preparation. So we wanted to try and make a piece that was based around models. So we tried to tell a story using model boxes and found using technology, using video technology, found ways to put actors in model boxes. And in that show, without giving too much of that show away, for a large part of that show, The audience is watching what we hope will seem like a strange, new, hybrid way of telling a story, with these miniature models and then actors being inserted into the models. What Wittgenstein was kind of consumed by in his life was the limits of what you can talk about, the limits of what you can think about. And as a man, he was very perplexed and troubled about how to live. And he lived a very unhappy life, probably, in some ways. And so the show also tries to test the limits of what theatre can really say about human beings and human life, the limits of what this little stage, this little laboratory stage, can do. Looking at your work, I detect
2: a certain interest in the fragment, the first draft, the unfinished play, because... As, as far as I know, you've never staged a traditional drama, uh, the, a written down text. So you just, you did the, um, you called it Beckett's Room, but uh, there's another version of it called a Be- a Beckett's First Play, as far as I know. And uh, there's Chekhov's First Play. So you're
1: interested in the unfinished work. Absolutely. Yeah, we made a piece called Beckett's Room, which should have been called Beckett's First Play but it was uh, forbidden by the estate. And for very good reasons, I think, actually, Uh, because there is a real first play of Beckett. There is a first play from Samuel Beckett, which has never been performed and which is, you're not allowed to perform. So we were interested in this as a starting point for a project. I think really we don't want to make a production of Three Sisters or Hedda Gabler or something because these plays are already finished. They don't need us. We will only make them worse. You know, There's just no way we could stage Three Sisters and make it better than it already is. We will ruin it. We're not good enough. And I say that's a slight joke, but also it's kind of true. That's not really where our skill set lies. But we are interested in theatre, which is this kind of crazy form, right? Where we do the same plays again and again and again. What other art form is there where that kind of repeating would be acceptable? I mean, maybe Hollywood remakes is the <laughs> is the nearest analogy, but it's really fascinating that, that theatre is stuck in this time loop. So it, we do the same play, we do Hamlet, we do Maria Stewart, we do these plays again and again and again, and that's OK, you know? And it's fascinating that we do that. So we're interested in that, but we're also not, we feel like we're not the best people to be part of, you know, those things. What is fascinating, though, is the idea of a theatre text that shouldn't work. You know, the Chekhov First Play project was really exciting for us and really revelatory for us because we, prior to making that project, we probably had been people who'd considered, or oh, maybe we'll do a, a play by Arthur Miller or Schiller or Eugene O'Neill or Beckett or something. But then we came across this weird, unfinished first play of Chekhov that he wrote when he was 18, and it's an absolute disaster. It's a complete mess. And, of course, it's fabulous for that reason. It's a person you can see in it, a person failing and attempting to try and create something and not quite getting there. And this just seemed to me to be, or seemed to us to be, the perfect thing because the form and the content then are the same. Th- that's ultimately the only thing we're really chasing. How do you find a form? that such that your form and your content are not separate that's 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 what that's what the task is right it's so hard to do but and with the checkup piece you're like okay so this is an unfinished play this is a disaster of a play we don't try and tidy it up we don't try and make it better we lean in we embrace that disaster and that mess that was a good learning for us and something that we tried to take on always you're just looking to see what form does this thing want to be in
0: We're talking about the history of of theater and traditional plays versus unfinished plays. And what I found very interesting in, in your work is how you explore the role of the audience and how you let the audience participate and think about new ways to make the audience participate. And, you know, in this podcast, in our previous episodes, we've been talking a lot about technology as the great enabler and liberator and a democratic tool that allows more and more people to participate in some way of culture, whether that's creating music or being part of democracy and democratic processes and so on. So when I think about my very limited knowledge of theater, theater does have this image of there's a stage and there's the audience and the audience sits there and listens and then they leave again. Whereas in your place, you try to involve them and let them participate. So You know, historically with theatre, have there been other periods or authors that also really thought about letting their audience participate in new ways? Or is this something that really you're trying to inject into theatre that hasn't been done in that way before?
1: Well, I definitely know this is not something that we are pioneering. (laughs) Certainly not. No, this is kind of certainly as long as I've ever been going to the theatre, one has been aware of certain types of work that attempt to fold in the audience. Now, maybe this is just our particular experience, but what is often noted, I mean, I often think about, I'm British, so Shakespeare and the that great Jacobean, Elizabethan age of theatre is our kind of, that's the thing that is always referred back to as being the kind of birthplace of theatre. And the role of the audience in that period It was so strange for us to really consider now, if you think about Shakespeare's Globe, which the experience of going there would be just bizarre. It was always basically light. The audience was vast, sort of 1,500 people or something, which is much bigger than any theatre in the UK really now, very, very few theatres of that size. Most of them were standing up and talking to each other and not really watching the play and certainly shouting back at the play. And, you know, interrupting the play. And the actors probably would have been speaking to the people individually. And, you know, the, the, the dramaturgy of the plays would have been completely informed by this, you know. And the, and then the people seating up top would have been one row, which was the people who are wealthier. And then the row above that would have been sometimes actually the queen. So you got this extraordinary social stratification of people in the theatre and you also got people who were all following different rules about being at the theatre. The people downstairs would be drinking and having sex and talking to people and carrying on complete parties while a play was going on. In Shakespeare's text, you can read it, you can tell. His work has a breadth of tone, like the tone is from high comedy up to kind of high poetry discussing the nature of the human soul. And I think that comes from the fact that he was well aware that he was dealing with, he was trying to speak to the whole world at the same time, you know? And I think something happened to an audience where an audience became, you know, the theatre became overall a bit more bourgeois and the theatre became a little bit more of a rule-bound place. We lost a little bit that sort of whole world in the audience. We are interested in how to make sense, how theatre makes sense of itself as a live art form on the night that has to acknowledge the audience, and we're interested in the way in which theatre is also ignoring the audience. Do you think
2: there's a kind of evolution of the audience as we have all the digital technology with us, uh, our mobiles that became body extensions, the um, practices of a second screen? And you've spoken about the shortened attention span that we have. And um, I think theater is changing in a way that it becomes an experience rather than something that you just uh, go to attend from eight to ten at the specific location. You somewhere said you need to start the show before the actual beginning of the show in the audience's mind.
1: I guess this is the question that when we made this Dimashina in Mir show and when we read around it, that is a very profound and interesting question for us all. How- basically what's happened i guess in the last 30 years or 20 years is that the internet and technology has made us realize that large parts of our life is really about exchanging information you know you you guys and me we don't need to be in the same room right now because it doesn't really matter all that matters is the information these iPhones are just extensions of us of course and, and very soon The iPhone won't even be an extension of us. It will be implanted in our heads. You know, there won't be, we we will seem very quaint that we used to carry these little boxes around everywhere, you know, to find out when the next tram is arriving. We'll just access that information. And so you realise that you're kind of reading Mark's books, screaming, thinking, but human beings aren't just exchanges of information, are they? When I meet someone on a street, is it really the case that I've just exchanged information and that's all the encounter amounted to? And I think theatre has to step in. I think for us, the idea of involving the audience in the shows, when I think about it, it's about charging the room, making experience both for anybody who gets up on stage and everybody else who then knows that they could have got on stage, turning it into something kinetic and physical and turning it into something material as opposed to just being an information exchange
2: especially so with the um, film theater, the experience is reduced to information. And the question for us as uh, theater makers is um, how do we get the emotion back into the show that is experienced at home in our screens and on our little devices? How can we facilitate trust in the images that we see? Because we all know images can be manipulated. So we don't necessarily expect everything to be true that is going to be shown us uh, in theater, and we need to get back the magic of theater into the little device that is that's showing us the news and uh, the yeah all the information that we need
1: to adjust that 's a really interesting point about truth when you go to the theater, fundamentally there is a truth going on there. It is just true that that person is standing in front of you and this person Their age, their physicality, these things are undeniable. And so it's true. We really struggled when making To Be A Machine to come up with ways that we might be able to convince the audience it was live. And it was really hard to do. The the closest we came was to use the chat function on the Vimeo where we streamed it so that people could actually see their comments come up and know, yes, this is happening live. But if I'm honest, it didn't really work because we were looking for something different from that. We were looking for something better. We were looking for something that felt live, something where the truth would be undeniable. And that's very, very hard to find. Our video designer made the observation when we were talking about how we might prove it was live. We were talking about, could you hold up that day's newspaper? And this is like a sort of cliche from the movies, you know, like, or, or indeed a real thing from hostage situations where people be, and we went, is that really the only way we've got of proving that it's live? And we sort of realize, maybe it is, maybe it's the best way. And of course, haha, <laughs> ironically, printed newspapers, certainly where I live, will be extinct within 10 years. <laughs> like They don't exist anymore. The, the business model has died. <laughs> You know, so you realise that these proofs that something is real and is happening live are are fewer and fewer. And that's fascinating and terrifying because we might be sliding into a world where we would no longer really think that whether something is true or not is our concern as citizens. We just consume the information and it doesn't really matter. Theatre being there and sharing the space does then become something that theatre needs to fight to still be. And I think theatre finds itself in a problematic position because however much we can deny it, the buildings and the meeting spaces are incredibly exclusive and they exclude a huge section of society for lots and lots of really different intersecting reasons. Because the other thing, though, that I'm thinking as you say this, is that what theatre has always done and must always do is to think about the world we're living in. And that means formally it has to understand that the worst thing that could possibly happen would be that the theatre becomes a silo or a cath- it becomes a cathedral, you know, it becomes a place where certain members of society go to, but realistically it's not got its eyes open. And I've been encouraged by lots of theatre work I've seen in the pandemic which you watch on your laptop, but also on your phone using Instagram. You know, an attempt to try and whatever it was Beckett said, find a form for the chaos or find a form for all this mess. You know, that's what we have to do. That's what theatre can do. You know, it has such formal experimentation built into it. So, yeah, how do we find a way that we still keep these buildings as being central? And your point about truth is such a good one. But doesn't become reactionary and doesn't become conservative. And, you know, in and of itself is scared of new forms of communication technology because they are not going away. (laughs) I love that that one thing
0: you just said, you know, find a form for all this mess. Which brings us back to, you know, theatre as a model for imaginary futures and and the role of theatre. The other things that you pointed on, I think, what I find so interesting, and that's my question, over the last 10 or 15 years, with you know technology becoming such a big part of our lives and social media becoming a big part of our lives, we're now accustomed to having all these feeds and information that is tailored to us personally. So none of our screens really look the same. So we have all of these experiences in the way we perceive the world very individualistically. And now you talked about uh, the machine that uh, this is like a a common experience where a group of people again perceive space and time together. Did you get the feeling from the feedback that you got from the audience that this is also a need that we have because we've lost it? Not already before the pandemic somehow, but somehow there's a craving of people that want to share the time and space together again.
1: There definitely is an appetite for it. There definitely is a desire to do it. There's a sort of chemical desire in the body, I guess, to be with other people as the clock ticks by and, you know, experiencing something together. I mean, your question is very provocative, though, because you're right. You know, we we no longer all read the same news. We just don't, you know, we no longer all look at the same world, really, in a lot of ways, in terms of the information. Um, I suppose we're kind of really interested in the possibility of theatre to be a visceral, bodily experience, and an experience that moves away from thinking about human transactions as being about information. We we play a lot of games in our theatre and tricks, but we hope that these games and tricks are really only ever about unleashing and returning to an emotional moment you know it's the emotion that we're hoping to unleash and reveal it's we're never trying to make a clever point because emotion is something and yeah the human the space as wittgenstein would say that you know the thing you cannot talk about a thing beyond words. That is a religious sensibility. You know, I I referred to saying theatres can't become cathedrals at the same time. There is something that we need to fight for, which is kind of, yeah, to move away from just thinking about theatre as information and to move away from theatre being, yeah, just about communicating a message or an idea. And I think the key is theatre as a, a place where... You just open up a space for a bunch of different individual people to be an individual and share a communal moment. They are all individuals. We are all individuals. The idea that an audience is one thing is is not true. We are profoundly individual. So how do we find a space where we all share the same moment and we all recognise each other's individuality in a community?
2: What I wanted to ask is, um, when I look at the cast list of um, To Be a Machine, um, you see a lot of job descriptions that aren't regular in a theater. So the uh, the, uh, theater system doesn't provide these kind of jobs. How do you convince uh, the theater to employ people from different industries and what do you get back from them? Because they behave differently in a rehearsal space. We have a code of um, when to uh, stay silent, uh, what to to expect of every different department and so on. So what can people from different industry bring to the theatre?
1: We don't do it on purpose, but we find ourselves kind of doing that with every project. With the, the Wittgenstein project, we needed model makers. And the Bulk theater has some of the most brilliant craftspeople in the world, but they don't have a model making department. And we are consistently finding ourselves in a place where w- the expertise are not there. We have to go outside to find other people. It's not deliberate, but we do like it because we love what happens when you bring disparate practitioners together. The vibe is a little bit different. It's more like the vibe, you know, like those Ocean's Eleven movies where like you assemble a, a group of weirdos together to make a project. But we've always liked the idea that there is no hierarchy. We come from a theatre tradition with a very clear hierarchy with the playwright very much at the top. And everybody else is just doing what the playwright writes and says. And we were radicalized out of that tradition.
0: This reminds me of this interesting metaphor that you mentioned before of the theater as a tech startup, which uh, you mentioned while talking about the Maschine in mir, where on one hand, you got data and information from your audience, each individual member of your audience, that you would have never had access to in a traditional setting. So this allowed you to build a different relationship. But with what you said now of bringing all these different people together, it also brings up, you know, the old gospel of the tech startup as someone who disrupts, you know, existing structures in order to create something new. So do you think that the theaters, institutions or theater companies should act more like tech startups?
1: I hate anyone listening to this and thinking that I'm proclaiming a model of theater that is is along the lines of the tech industry i don 't know anything about a tech startup really, so i 'm sure there are lots of practices that go on within these hyper tech bubble companies that we wouldn 't want to uh, we wouldn 't want to emulate but yeah, it was really interesting with to be a team because we did then start thinking of our audience like information well, two things happened. We started thinking of them like information because we literally had spreadsheets with codes on to tell us how many audience members had uploaded for any particular night. And so we started to see, oh, EX2312 hasn't uploaded yet. You know, so we started to think about everything as data. Because if you think about things that way, it becomes very addictive. At the same time, though, the opposite happened because the audience, it's very easy, especially for directors to ignore the individual quality of their audience members. Whereas when we were making To Be A Machine, we got these videos and they were beautiful. People sent in videos of themselves trying to work their webcams and laugh when we told them to laugh. Videos of themselves where their cat walked across in the background. It was so moving and so intimate, you know, we saw into people's lives. So for us, I, I still have memories of particular audience members of particular nights, both in Vienna and in Dublin, and, and I've never had that before. So it's that strange thing that that the tech industry has brought to us whereby we are all data, but at the same time our experiences are completely individualized and we are treated as individuals. And there's a a great book, the Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism, makes the point that the move into so-called surveillance capitalism and individual targeting should be seen as the end point of the way in which consumer capitalism has given people what they want which is a sense of individual autonomy i would like a different car because i feel like i want that car you know now i'm not i'm not here to talk about uh, political <laughs> but capitalism or socialism or political structures but there is something that this hyper individualized tech world is giving us which is a which is a human need as well the, the desire to feel individual
0: Well, I hope this conversation helped you to better understand the role of technology in theater and vice versa. This episode was recorded in May 2021 during Creative Days, an annual conference that gathers creative minds from around the world in Vienna. If you are curious to find out more about Dead Center and their most recent productions in Vienna and around the world, check out the show notes in your podcast app. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further. My name is Severin, over and out, until next time.